Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. Today we're bringing you part two of a new type of podcast. The first part of the COPD Stakeholder Summit series ran two weeks ago. In it, a panel of experts discussed the burden of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, available treatments, and more. In this second part of the series, the same panel of experts continues their talk on COPD. They will discuss personalized approaches to COPD management and treatment efficacy. Welcome to part two of the American Journal of Managed Care's COPD Stakeholder Summit podcast series. I'm your host today, Dr. Neil Minkoff, Chief Medical Officer of COAS Healthcare. Today, we'll highlight the second half of our discussion with Dr. Bradley Drummond, Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Pulmonary Disease at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine. Mr. Michael Hess, Respiratory Therapist and Chronic Lung Disease Coordinator at the Western Michigan University School of Medicine. Dr. Maria Lopes, who is the former Chief Medical Officer of Magellan RX and Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield. And Dr. Donald Mahler, an Emeritus Professor of Medicine in the Division of Pulmonology at the School of Medicine at Dartmouth University. Topics of conversation in today's podcast include approaches for healthcare decision makers and clinicians for individualized management of COPD based on patient characteristics and limitations, as well as the evaluation of treatment efficacy. In our first clip, Dr. Lopes and Dr. Drummond discuss a personalized approach to COPD management. Dr. Mahler highlights his treatment approach to the use of dual bronchodilation and triple therapy. As a payer, um, our objective is to provide enough choice, if you will, and, um, and also to understand the clinical differentiation amongst these products, to really appreciate uh, the background and, and what we now know about some of these devices and uh, the, the degree of personalization and how this can connect with better outcomes, because in the end, from a total cost perspective, we're paying for ER, we're paying for hospitalizations and readmissions. Um, so fascinating to hear some of these predictive tools around PIF and how they can uh, certainly connect with um, helping patients, connect patients to the right device and then the education that should follow. Uh, so uh, usually, you know, data is so powerful, real world data in terms of helping us understand, again, that degree of differentiation. And what else can be done, right? So best practices around the approach, um, you know, including uh, the need for uh, respiratory, you know, care team, uh, the need for care coordination, certainly between uh, the, even sometimes the hospital uh, care manager and transitions in care, what happens in that patient's home. Um, as a pair, we have lots of data. We have data that uh, spans uh, pharmacy data, medical resource use, um, but it's not always possible to have PIF, right? And, and to have uh, some of these metrics that are potentially actionable. Uh, so more obviously needs to be done, but I totally agree that it is about choice and connecting patients to the right device, the right solution, the right support, education, and even the appropriate information. Uh, I think apps, including things like um, CAT, which is the COPD assessment tool, are helping uh, on the care management side uh, and even potentially on the uh, practice side, delivery side. 
But uh, certainly I think uh, what's been highlighted is really critical if we're going to achieve the outcomes that we wanna see for COPD patients. So let's kind of make it maybe a tiny bit more concrete, right? So uh, uh, Dr. Drummond, you know, we, we, we had talked about um, gold recommendations around treatment guidelines, right? And we know there are lots and lots of treatment options. So, you know, a patient comes to you for COPD management, you know, kind of more concretely, what are your steps and how do you start and, and what are they likely to end up on from a pharmacologic molecule and device combination? Sure. Yeah, and I think, you know, how do we sort of take the treatment strategies published by Gold and actually put those into action, which is always yeah. the important and challenging thing. So the, the first step is really I confirm that they actually have COPD. And that sounds like a silly statement, but just, again, um, the importance of spirometry testing to confirm that the symptoms they're having are actually reflected or are caused by their airflow limitation. So that's the first step. The second step, as I outlined uh, earlier in our discussion, is to get a good assessment of their symptom burden and their future exacerbation risk. Because really, once you have those two key domains assessed, you can really begin to, as Dr. Mahler outlined, stratify these patients into different categories. So if somebody has low symptom burden and low exacerbation risk, and exacerbation risk, again, is defined by uh, what you've done in a prior year. If you've had two or more outpatient hospital exacerbations, or if you, excuse me, if you've had two or more outpatient exacerbations or one hospitalized exacerbation in the prior year, you're considered high risk for future exacerbations. So if you have low symptom burden and low exacerbation risk, the gold treatment strategy suggests that you simply need a short acting bronchodilator. But if you have a lot of symptoms, but you're a low exacerbation risk, then you have the option of either using a, a bronchodilator, either in a, a singular mono bronchodilator or a dual bronchodilator. And there are good data that combined dual bronchodilators increase FEV1 or lung function measurements and reduce symptoms compared to monotherapy. And they also likely reduce exacerbations compared to monotherapy. So often in my patients where I'm, I am in a tertiary care center, our patients typically, if they're coming to us, have a little bit more symptoms. We generally will move to, <clears throat> excuse me, we will generally move towards a dual bronchodilator therapy um, for those symptomatic patients without a lot of exacerbation risk. If individuals have high exacerbation risk and high symptom burden, then you really have the option of dual bronchodilator therapy, or that's when you can begin considering inhaled corticosteroid containing regimens with bronchodilators. And you know, there's a lot of discussion in the COPD world about when should we incorporate inhaled corticosteroids into a patient's regimen. And certainly those patients who we probably should not be using it in are those patients who have a lot of pneumonia events, which would be one of the potential side effects. They have consistently low blood eosinophils, um, as that seems to be a predictor of who may not respond to inhaled steroids, or other, they've got other chronic lung infections. Um, conversely, those individuals in my clinic who I would tend to use inhaled corticosteroids earlier, if they've certainly, if they've been hospitalized for an exacerbation, because as I discussed earlier, that's really a life-threatening event in the future. Um, they have blood eosinophils that are elevated, and the gold treatment strategy recommends a threshold of 300 or more or they have a history or concomitant asthma. So those patients can help tease out who may benefit from the inhaled steroids. But at the end of the day, assess symptoms, assess exacerbation risk, place them in a low or high risk category based on those two domains, and then you can select your uh, molecules appropriately from there. The Gold Committee has recommended a stepwise approach to treating COPD, similar to the stepwise approach to treating asthma. And I do not follow this stepwise approach, uh, Brad Drummond mentioned uh, the data that supports, uh, for example, 
two different bronchodilators in those that are very symptomatic. And I'll give you an example of a vignette that I included in a book that I wrote several years ago, an educational book for patients with COPD. And in that vignette, the doctor uh, exam it does it takes a history, examines the patient, says, Mr. Jones, uh, you have COPD. I can prescribe one in bronchodilator in an inhaler that will help you breathe better. Or I can prescribe two different bronchodilators in a single inhaler that will help you breathe even more. Which one would you prefer? And I think that very simple, silly example illustrates why hold back? Why not give the patient the best treatment we have for relieving symptoms? So as Brad described, uh, people who have high symptoms and low risk of exacerbation, I would prescribe dual bronchodilators uh, be, because of the improved benefit. And that's even supported by the American Thoracic Society, which in May of 2020 published guidelines and basically said two bronchodilators are better than one for those people who are short of breath or have exercise limitation. And then for the group D, which are symptomatic, high symptoms and high risk of future exacerbations, Two studies published in 2020, uh, one is called IMPACT and the other is called ETHOS, different companies, different med molecules, different medicines show that three medicines in a single inhaler, what we call triple therapy, is more effective in not only reducing the risk of future exacerbations, but they also, also showed a mortality benefit compared to two bronchodilators. So clearly uh, the people that have been hospitalized for a COPD exacerbation, in my perspective, they should be on triple therapy unless there is a strong reason to avoid a medicine because of possible side effects, as has been mentioned, the possibility of pneumonia associated with inhaled corticosteroids. So that would be the rationale for supporting the withdrawal of the ICS? Yeah, if someone's on an inhaled corticosteroid and they have one or more uh, uh, episodes of pneumonia, which typically cause an exacerbation, I would sit down and talk with the patient and say, hey, here's, here's one of the risks. You're on the medicine that may increase the risk of pneumonia. I would recommend a trial of discontinuing it and, and seeing how they go. And as uh, Brad mentioned, uh, I'd certainly want to look at their blood eosinophil count. If that was low, and they're having episodes of pneumonia, I would definitely recommend withdrawing the inhaled corticosteroid and following their clinical course. I think what Dr. Mahler just outlined is critically important for payers. We want to be evidence-based. Um, I think we uh, react to published literature, especially if there's data around reduction mortality, reduction events, reductions, hospitalizations, and ER visits, and exacerbations, and how this connection uh, between uh, the convenience of potentially combination uh, treatments for the right patient can really optimize outcomes. And, um, and so I think that's um, uh, very significant when we're in a PNT committee, we're looking at what is the degree of clinical differentiation? Is, just, is this just convenience or does it really have 
connect to better outcomes, especially in the short term. And I, and I think that in COPD, uh, you don't have to wait long. If you can see that an, an exacerbation has occurred and you can prevent the next event for this to have uh, inherent value. Um, so, you know, I think that it, you know, certainly it's about choice. Uh, it's also about helping, you know, practitioners uh, have enough choice. And it's becoming also about convenience with a recognition that convenience matters. And there's a, um, there's a cost, if you will, if you introduce steps or that some uh, agents, you know, are more challenging or you have steps before you can get to something that's more convenient or perhaps more appropriate to avoid a costly event. So going back to you know, your question, I think if the data is there to support uh, matching right patient, right approach, uh, these are drugs that compared to a hospitalization or an ER visit, the, the cost of the treatment pales in comparison to avoiding an event. And so uh, generally speaking, they are available. There's not a lot of prior authorization or scrutiny around their use. There may be preferred agents and non-preferred agents, but in general, I think we recognize um, the value of the treatment and even um, the convenience and the ease of administration that then links to better adherence. Mr. Hess gives an overview of his approach to evaluating treatment efficacy involving the ongoing use of quality of life interviews and PIF assessment. Doctors Mahler and Drummond then walk through patient assessment and appropriate device selection including the strengths and limitations of each type of device. Finally, Dr. Lopes and Mr. Hess highlight care coordination between payer and providers in order to maximize patient outcomes. There are a couple of different ways we can go about it, actually. We have some objective measures, things like spirometry, pulmonary function testing, a six-minute walk test, which is a measure of exercise capacity. That gives us objective data to tell us what the physiology is doing. Then we also have things that are a little bit more subjective, what would fall under the category of patient reported outcomes. These are our symptom uh, surveys, like the, many people may be familiar with the St. George's Respiratory Questionnaire. I believe we've mentioned the, the COPD assessment test or the CAT, there are a couple other ones out there. Those are where we can give a patient an interview and get a score back that looks at various domains of their symptom burden uh, and where they're at. Uh, one of the things that I like to do the most on top of both of those is to simply ask how they're doing. Because as we mentioned before, there can be a big disconnect between the actual symptom burden and the subjective symptom burden or how somebody, you know, after they've done all the adaptation and the lifestyle modifications, how are they actually feeling? Um, I'll tell you, one of the most rewarding aspects of my evaluations are when I am able to, to start somebody on a regimen and teach them how to use their, their therapies. Uh, and then they come back in, in a month or six weeks and they tell me, wow, I, I didn't know how bad my breathing had gotten until it got better. Um, so when we do, when we're trying to run somebody into a, a new regimen, we like to see them, uh, I like to see them about every month to six weeks. Uh, once somebody is a little bit more established and we've got their, their technique optimized and everything else going, uh, then we can usually go every three to six months or so. Uh, some of the more uh, in, invasive or, or cumbersome testing, I should say, uh, like spirometry, that can go a little bit more um, annually or that aspect. But it is important to be checking in on people on a regular basis um, just to, again, make sure that they're doing well and they're comfortable with their regimen because the more comfortable they are and the more satisfied they are, the more likely they are to adhere to it and the better their subjective outcome is going to be. Okay, so let me tweak the scenario a little bit just to keep you on the hot seat for a second here. 
which is uh, the patient isn't doing well, or you don't think they're doing as well as they could, right? So they've come into you in the scenario, say they're on, you know, a combination therapy. Um, how do you start to reevaluate where they are? What testing do you do? And how do you make recommendations for changes? Well, that's where we start getting, we start diving a little bit more into the quality of life interviews, because we can look for, there, there's this idea of treatable traits where there are certain things that we can specifically target in COPD therapy. For example, um, you know, is somebody coughing very, very much? Do we need to figure out how to address that cough? Do we need to start looking at allergy uh, control or, you know, are they having, are they having reflux? Um, are they just, you know, short of breath? Do they need to go to pulmonary rehab and get quote unquote back into shape? Um, you know, we start looking at what exactly we can modify. Uh, then again, we also have to make sure we're looking at inhaler technique um, you know, because again, the, the tools don't work if you don't know how to use them. And then once we have eliminated all of that stuff, then we can start looking at, well, what do we need to do to the medication regimen uh, in order to, to optimize that? Uh, once we start getting well into the, the more severe phases of the disease, we can start looking at things like respiratory assist devices or non-invasive ventilation, uh, or even some of the, the newer bronchoscopic interventions that are out there, the, the, the valves and the coils and the other therapies that can uh, make minimally invasive changes into the, the lung physiology itself to, again, get those people uh, breathing their best and, and raising their quality of life. And do you use sort of office PIF uh, as a way of helping to stratify that or to evaluate further? Oh, absolutely. I use that uh, at every encounter uh, because it does change over time. Uh, you know, as, we, as people age or as their other, their, their concurrent conditions change, um, or there are many factors that can affect some or impact somebody's PIF. So it's important to be checking that on an ongoing basis to make sure that their regimen continues to be appropriate. One of the other aspects in, in selecting uh, the appropriate inhaler that I follow is kind of a three-step process. So uh, if it's initial visit or follow-up visit, uh, the first step is assessing their cognitive function. Uh, are they able to think clearly? Are they able to follow instructions? And if their cognitive function is impaired, then my assessment would be that a handheld inhaler is probably not appropriate. They would probably need nebulization as long as they have a family member or a caregiver to set up that nebulizer uh, kit or system. And then I'll assess their manual dexterity. Uh, what that means is can they handle uh, the inhaler correctly? Do they have arthritis? Do they have Parkinson's disease? Do they have muscle weakness that might impair their ability to uh, actuate an inhaler, a loaded inhaler, those types of things. So again, if their manual dexterity is poor, then I would uh, recommend nebulization. And then the final step as we've been talking about is if I'm thinking about or they're on a dry powder inhaler, I'll have our respiratory therapist measure their peak inspiratory flow. And if that is suboptimal, then, and I'm going to use a handheld inhaler, then I would pick either the pressurized meter dose inhaler or the slow mist inhaler, because those are flow independent and don't require on the patient generating a high inspiratory flow to literally break up and pull the powder out of the device. And then the final step is patient preference. Sometimes people have been tried on different inhalers. They say, well, I like this one. I can use this one correctly. 
and uh, that will play a role in, in inhaler selection. So Dr. German, let me ask you, because we've talked a little bit about the differences, right? And you brought some of these things up originally between a meter dose inhaler, a dry powder inhaler, the, the, the soft mist and so on. Um, it seems to me that at one point, um, uh, the dry powder inhaler were considered almost like a can't miss therapy for a lot of patients, especially presented to us in the emergency room or in primary care. But it seems like there might be a little trickier than that, especially for certain subpopulations. And, and it, could you just talk a little bit about that and, and how you help to um, use whether it's PIF or something else to try to decide if who... who ends up in that therapeutic class and who goes elsewhere? Yeah, I, th I think it's, I'll, it is a sort of, there are several factors that go into this decision-making process. And it, as Dr. Baller said, it, it does involve also the patient preference. So uh, unfortunately we do have to consider cost and that, that um, you know, if an individual um, has different preferred plans or they may not have uh, insurance access, that may impact what our options are. Um, but then exactly as Dr. Mahler outlined, you know, when I start thinking about uh, should we be moving towards a dry powder and hair uh, delivery system or not, it's a, a lot about cognitive function, manual dexterity, um, and then also that peak inspiratory flow. Um, you know, the, the nice thing, and, and patients will appreciate these differences, you know, that the meter dose inhaler, it's portable. Um, there are combination molecules involved there. It does require a spacer or a holding chamber for best delivery. And it does require some coordination of the actuation and the inhalation. And so uh, really trying to get an assessment from the patient or are those things effective? Uh, can that patient deliver the, do those things effectively? Uh, the dry powder inhalers have a lot of appeals. There are many of them that are once daily dosing, which patients really appreciate. Um, it certainly helps with adherence. Um, they're portable. As we've mentioned, there are combination molecules that could be included. Um, the challenge there is that the, the dry powder inhalers are flow dependent. So understanding that the patient may not be able to generate that sufficient inspiratory flow and therefore actually not getting that medication um, is, is, is an issue. Um, the other thing just to remember is that the dry powder inhalers can sometimes be impacted by humidity. So if they're being stored in the bathroom, um, that that can impact how well the powder is being uh, disaggregated. The soft mist inhalers, uh, you know, they're, they're convenient because they are flow independent. So we don't have to worry about that peak inspiratory flow uh, reduction issue. There is once daily dosing. Um, they are, they're also available in a combination delivery system. And so there's a lot of uh, appeals there. Um, there are some challenges about actual loading the device, priming the device. These are perhaps a little bit foreign to patients. And so oftentimes we'll ask them to ask their pharmacist to assist with getting the device set up. So that does require a little bit of training. And then certainly the, the nebulized therapies, they require really the minimal amount of coordination and effort, but they're the longest administration time. There's portability issues. If somebody, as Dr. Mahler mentioned, if somebody has cognitive uh, impairments, they may need to have a caregiver help them in that regard. So I, I think that we really have to consider all of these multiple domains as we're trying to decide, at least uh, what I'm trying to decide, what, you know, how I'm going to assign a particular molecule and a device for a patient. One thing that, that I think we've got to reinforce is, you know, you mentioned that there was, that there's a, maybe these dry powder inhalers were supposed to be a can't miss thing. I don't think that there is, I don't think any of these devices is inherently superior to any of the others. And I don't think we're ever going to have a device that is inherently superior to any of the others. It's absolutely essential that we all work together on the clinical side, the patient caregiver side, the payer side, 
uh, to match, again, match the molecule and the device with the situation, have that uh, precision medicine so that uh, we, we optimize those outcomes. I, I think if I can add, I think that's Please. a critical point. Um, also the appreciation for how time consuming this is, right? And we may not really know if we got it right the first or the second time around. So back to how can we collect uh, perhaps patient reported outcomes data, but also a consistent approach to some of the key metrics that matter uh, in terms of that care coordination effort. And patients at the end of the day may not just have COPD as well. So really appreciate everything Dr. Mahler said and Dr. Drummond and Mike um, in terms of how do, you, how do you get to this right fit to optimize the outcomes. Before we conclude, I'm just gonna open it up for final thoughts and comments. Uh, Dr. Mahler. Uh, I've enjoyed participating in this panel. Uh, clearly, uh, we need more information for patients as well as healthcare professionals, as well as the people who work for insurance companies uh, to improve outcomes for our patients with COPD. Uh, for Maria, one of the most challenging things in my practice is prescribing a medication that is not covered by the patient's insurance uh, coverage. And then we go through, oh, let's try this or let's do prior authorization. And, and, and clearly I understand the dilemma that insurance companies have. They have contracts with pharmaceutical companies and and they have preferred and, and less preferred medications. But uh, uh, I think if we can think things like this panel that help us communicate, understand different perspectives, uh, focusing on patients and their outcomes uh, can only help uh, improve things for, for all of us. It's been my pleasure. Mr. Hess. Uh, yeah, to echo that, I'm, we have a lot of work that needs to be done. There's still a lot to improve on in the COPD world, but um, opportunities like this where we bring multiple stakeholders to the table and start having or more open, robust conversation, um, that's what pushes us, pushes us along the line. Uh, and that gives me a lot of hope for the future. So I'm excited to see a lot of the new tools that are coming available and uh, people excited to use them. Dr. Lopes? Absolutely. Well said. I've enjoyed tremendously being part of this group. And I think uh, anything that we can do to improve best practices, to improve the care delivery uh, for these patients, that um, in the end, it's, it's in our all best interest and patient best interest to do a better job in delivering care and, and reducing costs. So a lot of innovation uh, in terms of uh, the patient outreach side the data that we can collect that hopefully matters in terms of being actionable. Um, and uh, in the end, also to think about patient-centered care because these patients have a lot of needs and how we can do a better job with uh, care coordination, uh, care management delivery, and the efficiency of the delivery of care so we're not duplicating efforts um, and uh, being grounded on evidence-based medicine. So thank you. And uh, that gives you the last word, Dr. Drummond. All right. Well, it's truly been a pleasure. I think that these types of multidisciplinary conversations are really what we need to advance COPD care. You know, I think back to where 
we were with COPD care maybe 20 years ago, and it was sort of this nihilism that there's nothing we can do. And here's, you know, an inhaler that may help you a little bit, but otherwise we're not going to make any dents on your disease progression. And now we're talking about, you know, individual phenotyping with eosinophils and peak inspiratory flow and virtual telehealth and virtual rehabilitation. And so I think that there's just been so much evolution in our care for COPD patients. And this really, uh, I think, is exciting and is engaging and is optimistic. And hopefully with these multidisciplinary groups, we can continue to move and improve the care of our COPD patients. So thanks for involving me. That's all we have for today. Thank you for listening to the COPD Stakeholder Summit podcast. For more updates and managed care, be sure to visit www.ajmc.com and sign up for our e-newsletter. If you missed it, please tune in to the first podcast in the series, where we discussed existing treatment options, practical considerations for drug and device selection, the role of peak inspiratory flow, or PIF, to evaluate treatment, and recent guideline recommendations. AJMC is also on social media. On Twitter, follow us at, at AJMC underscore journal. On Facebook, like us at the American Journal of Managed Care. And follow the AJMC page on LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.